time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. So let me ask you a question. Do you know anyone that's worked with Elton John or Elon Musk or sent people down to see the wreck of the Titanic on the seabed or closed museums in Florence for a private dinner party and then had Andre Bocelli serenade them while they ate their pasta? Well, today you're going to meet somebody that's done all of that. He's quoted as the real-life Wizard of Oz by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. Steve Sims is his name, and he is the best-selling author of Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. He's a sought-after coach and a speaker at a variety of networks, groups, and associations, as well as the Pentagon and Harvard, where he's been twice. Today we're talking about how you are perfect in your imperfections, and we talk about how you deal with fear so that you can come alive with that. If you're an entrepreneur or if you're just a regular person, this is an inspirational talk on how you can live your best life, even if it comes from a place that begins with ignorance and starts with a question. Welcome now, Steve Sims. Steve, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited about this. This is going to be a little different uh, from some of our other conversations because you've got an interesting story along the way in your business and in life. Let's start with that. How did you get to here? What's the story of how you got to this place? Wow. There's a quick question with a long answer. (laughs) So let me try and uh, um, uh, left school at the age of 15 in East London, fell into my dad's building firm and realized like a lot of people that I just didn't fit. Um, and from there, uh, as we were saying, just at the beginning, when we were getting to know each other before the, uh, before the interview started, I had always followed this line of uh, you are the combination of the people you hang out with. So I went and tried to find my ultimate five to become a byproduct of them. Uh, I started working on the door of nightclubs, driving trucks, delivering cakes. Um, I did so many different jobs. But I ended up becoming, I suppose, the Mr. Fix-It, or as Forbes called me, the real-life Wizard of Oz, and ended up working and fulfilling fantasies and wish fulfillment for the very rich and very famous around the planet. And my clients uh, include everyone from you know, the Vatican to Sir Elton John, El- uh, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson. So I am now the guy that walks around and fulfills the fantasies and makes people's Cocktail story is just a little more interesting. <laughs> so uh, at age 15, when you dropped out, that too was to lay bricks. I mean, you were a bricklayer at that Yeah, point. yeah. I left and, school and my dad just said, right, you're on the building site. And that was it. That was my life. That was your choice. Go to school or out to... No, well, I never had. Yeah, <laughs> in, in England, in England, you finished school at the age of 16, but I was very young for my year. So I was still 15 when I left school. Okay. And it still amazes me today, you know, leaving school at 15. I got a 15 year old and how could I dump him into life? But yeah, I left school at 15 and I was on the building site the following day. Wow. Yeah. A little terrifying to think 15 year olds that are out <laughs> doing the world. Yep. Yeah. But in the course of that, you, you talked about uh, realizing that the combination of the, the five people who are around you are kind of who make you. A 15 year old's not thinking that. Where did that come from? Where'd that? Oh, truth. I can, I can tell you the, I can tell you the cloth, the color, the sound, the smell of that pivotal moment. Um, I was, I was hot in bricks, which is this funny V-shaped 
kind of bucket that sits on your shoulder that you stick all your bricks in for when you're delivering them to the bricklayers on the, on the scaffolding. And I was walking up a ladder with this on my shoulder, with one hand on the ladder, and I get to the top of the scaffolding, and I turn around to lay the bricks down for my dad. My dad was closest to the, uh, the ladder. Next to him was uh, my uncle. And then next to him were his kids, my cousins. <laughs> and then after him was my granddad in his 80s. I saw my entire lifeline in front of me. <laughs> and it, it made me freeze. And my dad actually yelled at me because I'd literally frozen looking at this. This is, this is it. This is my lifeline. And we went down for tea break at 10 o'clock. It was raining in England, cold. And we're just getting warm and just trying to dry out a little bit. And like a little kid being stupid, I walked up to my granddad and I said, granddad, granddad. And I remember this so accurately. I said to him, hey, did you ever think you'd be doing this when you were 80? Now, of course, it was a rude question. I'm surprised now I didn't get a punch in the mouth. But he literally stopped eating his sandwich and didn't even look at me. But he said these words exactly. I've never forgotten them. He said, son, you don't quit today. You'll be me tomorrow. Wow. And I was like, oh. And I ran up to my dad as we were leaving the caravan, and I said, Dad, I've got to quit. And he went, why? And I went, I spoke to granddad, and I said to granddad, hey, did you ever think you'd be doing this when you were 18? And he said to me, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. And my dad looked at my granddad. My granddad just carried on walking. My dad kind of knew something, I feel, and he just turned around and he said, we're tight for guys in a moment. You finish up on Friday. I went, all right, all right. So I finished up on Friday. He was cool with it. My granddad was cool with it. Everyone else was cool with it. But my mum, going back to my mum, and she just thought I was turning back, turning the back on the family business. And I remember her saying to me, you think you're better than us, don't you? And I said, no, I just think there's something better for me. You know, and I want to see if I can find it. You know, I don't know what I don't know, but I've got to try and see if there's something out there for me. Me and my dad were fine as I went through loads of mismatches and trying and failing and trying different jobs, trying to find my mark. But me and my mum, we never had a good relationship ever since that day. Mm. Uh, it was weird. But um, I knew that there was something ignorantly. I knew there was something out there that was right for me. I just had to go and find it. Yeah. So your dad also knew what your grandfather knew. This, I think they both the knew. Yeah, yeah, I think they both knew. And I, I got to see my granddad a few times as I thankfully started to make my path um, as this, this, this connector, this, this relationship guy, this fixer. There wasn't any really name for it. People called me a concierge, but I wasn't the kind of guy you phoned up for a restaurant book in order to walk your dog. So that wasn't really a very good fit. But, you know, the money started to come in. The stability started to come in. My network started to come in, which was where all my power and my wealth was and is. Um, and my granddad got to see some of that before he died. And then my dad very much got to see it. But even when I started helping out my family, there was still a bit of resentment from my mum, which was always weird. You know, the, you know Irish, an Irish woman is never to be messed with. So as uh, an Irish Londoner, she wasn't, you know, once she realized that she wasn't happy, you was never going to change that mind. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and there is something about that. I mean, you made the point yourself that it wasn't that you were better than them, but there was something better for you. 
that feeling though, uh, when, you know, I've, I've always, um, heard the story about crabs, you know, you put crabs in a tub, you yep. don't have to worry about them getting out cause they'll keep pulling each other back in that that happens around us. And, and we're not aware of the fact that we're stuck in this web of the people that are immediately around us. You're absolutely correct. And there was nothing more visual than that than an East End pub in the 80s. You know, people just thought, you know, this is where you, this is where you grew up. You went to the pub and you were 18 years old, yet in the pub was 80s, 90s, you know, 60-year-old, all of the old. And you just went, hey, this is where I am. And then people would leave home and it was nothing uncommon for them to find a house two doors down from where their mum lived. Um and in, in that area, you ended up living in the same street as where you were born. Um, and it just, it didn't kind of sit right with me. I just, I refused to accept this was it. Um, I didn't know where I was going or what I was going to do, but my drive to find it was greater than my knowledge of what it was. What do you think inspired that? What what was different for you? Uh, your grandfather at some point, you know, had that same, I, I could be stuck here, but you did it. What do you think it was that launched you out? So luckily I met my, my wife. We were 17 and 16 when we met. So we've been there all the way through. She's oft, often said that my superpower was ignorance. Um, <laughs> I didn't have intelligence. And in fact, a very good friend of mine lives down the road from me here, a guy called Jay Abraham. And he's, he said to me when we, when we first started getting close, he said to me, my I can is far greater than my IQ. Yeah. And it was just this kind of like, well, I don't like that. I'm going over here to look if this is a better view or I'm going to go and try that. So I was very ignorant, very stupid, very uneducated, uh, ill-informed. I had all of these things that could have easily have said, you're not going to amount to anything but they removed the fear. I never had any fear of talking to anybody. I never had any fear of walking into any room. I would walk into a room full of people far more affluent than me and walk up to someone like a four-year-old child and go, hey, how come you're rich and I'm not? And I never had any fear of that. I never had any uh, doubt. Now, there's been times in my life where that doubt's kind of surfaced. You know, we all get those. But I never had it in the early stages. Um, and I was able to literally walk up to very powerful people going, so how do you do what you do? How come you're not nervous here? Um, and then funny enough, some of the most powerful people in the world would honestly turn around to me and they'd go, I'm actually shitting my pants here. You know, I'm actually very uncomfortable here. But no one had ever asked them that question. No one had ever spoken to them strangely as human beings. Everyone had put them on a pedestal and they were talking up to them rather than towards them. And I just found that, you know, I had, I, I confronted people as people. And it wasn't until later on that I realized that I was dealing with some very powerful people that a lot of people were terrified to talk to. Which brings me, I want to push a little bit on this, Steve, because okay. um, there, you know, I think there are a lot of people, I think every entrepreneur, one of their skill sets is ignorance, you know, <laughs> otherwise, yes. yeah. but, but I think there's a cycle, right? And, and I think that a lot of us have it where we all think we know better. Like, you know, we have this, we look at something, we go, oh, that's easy. And then we get into it and we go, oh gosh, I knew nothing. And we drop into the trough. And then some people kind of keep going up the other side until they've figured it out. 
and that space on the other side, I don't think it was ignorance in your case. I mean, ignorance is something that all of us share at the beginning of a proposition or, or possibility. Yours was that you did something with fear that a lot of people don't. And I'm curious on what that was, on, on why that was, because most people feel fear and they go, yeah, I think I better get away from that. That's, that feels scary. So I'm going to back away. And instead you went, yep, I'm okay. I'm going to go ahead and push through. So why did you walk towards the kind of those scary moments? Because those, even the wealthy, powerful people were feeling like they were faking it. So clearly you were, but you pushed on. There was something that happened you see, as a young lad, uh, I've always been big. For any of these people that aren't fortunate to see my stunning good looks, um, I'm 240 pounds of ugly. Tattoos, piercings, ride around on motorbikes. Uh, I, can be, I can be an intimidating look. Yeah. Now, I was that from a very young age, but in the pub, I was the guy that people would pick on so that they could earn their stripes. I was not a very good fighter. I was not, I am not an aggressive person. I worked very well on the door because I would walk up to you in a nightclub and say, look, I've been asked to, to, to pull you out of this nightclub. I don't want us to get into a fight. You know, it's going to mess me shirt up. It's going to ruin my night. I will dance with you if you want me to, but I'd really rather not. Any chance I could ask you politely to just leave and see you again tomorrow night. In fact, <laughs> if you do this, I'll buy you the first beer tomorrow night, you know, and I would talk my way and people, you know, confronted with this big fellow would be like, yeah, okay. I was not a very good fighter, but I was always getting picked on in the pubs. I started doing kickboxing purely and simply with the mentality that I want to be a good fighter. What happened was two things. One, the better I became a fighter, the less I fought. People would see it on me. They would see that I was ready and avoid me. But the other thing happened, that second before you get into the fight, your whole body comes alive. Now, I race motorcycles now. Just before that, that red light turns into green, my entire body becomes alive. When you're walking past a bush and it rustles because the cats run through it, your body becomes alive. In that moment, you have heightened sense. Mm-hmm. It's that fight or flight moment. Now, some people, the bush will rattle, and they're running away from it before they realize it. Here's the daft thing. They'll run across a road of traffic to avoid that, that bush. They're running into traffic mm-hmm. to get away from what's in there. Me, I kind of realized that's where I was alive. I kind of realized that, whoa, this experience, this adrenaline isn't fear. It's my trigger. And so I found, and I, I speak on stages all over the planet, and I'll tell you quite openly, I've spoken, my smallest stage, I think, was, you know, a board meetings uh, a dinner party, and there were like 16 people. My largest was 17,000, okay? Every time I have to go in front of them and help them, I get nervous. I get a bit of scare, but I also get alive. And so I realized that that was adrenaline for me. Now, people react to fear. There's, there's no avoiding it. You react to fear. But whether you react in a positive or a negative, hey, that's your decision. And for me, I realized that fear fueled me rather than repelled me. Mm. And I would walk into a room that was frightening, 
But I'll be like, if only I can conquer this, if only I can get over the other side of this, what possible gain can I get from this terrifying moment? And I found that I became great. It was, it was a typical elastic band. You stretch it and stretch it and stretch it, and it never goes back to its original form. It never goes back to its original size. And I found that that fear was me being stretched. And I would walk out of a room having conversations with people that everyone else is terrified about. The next time I walk into another room, I'm no longer terrified there. You know, I do, um, I don't want to digress, and, but um, I go into prison a lot. Um, never forcibly. As a I guest. Walk, <laughs> as a guest, as a guest. I go to prison. I've been doing it for about three and a half years now. I go to a level four maximum security prison and I train and consult and hopefully motivate what we call entrepreneurs in training through the Defy Ventures program to teach, to teach um, criminals how to take their hustle and haste into a legal productive uh, society. And it's incredible to be doing this. Now, here's the funny thing. When you first walk into a level four, now level four, you're not there because you've got a couple of parking tickets. Right. You know, it's the serious crimes that were committed that got you in there. But a lot of these people in there say, hey, I don't want this to dictate my life. I want to be the man I can be. I want my mom to be proud of me. I want my kids to be able to, to be proud of seeing you walk down the street. And so they want to change and they can change. And I, going in there... I'm in a room of visually some very scary, intimidated people. But the thing that got me the first day I went in there was how intimidated they were about me. I had taken my time to go in there to help them. And they were like, it, it's a pleasure to meet you. They were terrified to talk to me because I was everything they wanted to become. In their eyes, I was a successful person that did everything by the book. I took the hard road to become a successful entrepreneur. No one ever gets to see the failures that we make. No one ever gets to see the mistakes we make. Yet their mistakes are worn on their uniform, on their criminal record. And so they didn't get to see the amount of times as an entrepreneur, I'm crying on a Wednesday because I'm wondering how I can make payroll on a, on a Friday. Mm. Or when you're getting the red letters because you can't pay your mortgage at the end of the month. As entrepreneurs, we've all been there. We know what that's like, but we don't stick them on Instagram. Mm. And so when you get over them, you, you, you never forget those moments. So it's a strange old thing, but I like, the, I like fear as a fueler. I like it as a way of perpetuating me. In fact, fear does dictate a lot of my life. And one of the things I'm terrified about is being the same person in six months' time that I am today. That honestly is the idea of fear for me. If I haven't grown, if I haven't pushed myself, if I haven't done things, tried things, I don't care if I failed, if I haven't experienced those challenges in that six months, then I haven't tried. And that's what I'm terrified of. Yeah. I, you know, it, so I've, I want to hit, hit something here and then we're going to back up a minute. I had this sure. person who, who wanted me to explain to his spouse that he had not changed. She, she kept saying, you've changed. And he, he says, yeah, I want you to convince her that I haven't changed. And I said, I, 
I hope you have. <laughs> if you haven't, yeah. what a what a waste, what a loss. But how you change is the question, and and what you're moving towards, which brings me kind of to your thing. There's two pieces to this, actually. One is I love this uh, the fear piece. It's, there's an interpretation piece: afraid or alive. Um, you, which one do you want to choose? And that's a mindset piece. It's not whether you have fear or not, but how you chose to interpret that for yourself. Am I afraid or is that bringing me alive? And, and your choice was to use that as energy that brought you alive. 100%. Uh, the other piece that I really um, liked, uh, the stretch piece. Um, and, and I think that that's a piece that, because what I watch is people hear fear as afraid. I got to back away from it is fear wants us to live a smaller and smaller life. Um, and, and so anything feels more and more like a stretch. But what you said is when you stretch into something, um, it grows you into that place. And, uh, and that, you know, I look back on, I had a, um, a failed business early in my career. And I remember when I got, it was, it was a horrible experience, um, put us in financial strain, uh, when my intention was to get us out of that. And, really was a, a, a blow to, to my ego, to everything. And then the next time I started something, I could look at it and go, oh, I've, I've, I've been to the worst. Yeah, it, this doesn't bother me because, I mean, it still it has an impact. But when everybody else is going, aren't you worried? I'm like, I've been here. You get through it. And yeah. that's what your point to is the fact that when you're stretched to that, it's not that you lose all fear as much as you have a sense, okay, I know what comes out of this. I, I know, like, for instance, I walk into the room and I'm scared of all these people to talk to. I talk to them anyway. And the next time I go in, I go, yeah, I lived. You know, I survived that. <laughs> I didn't die from that. And I got something out of it. Yeah, that's the point is growth doesn't come from success. Growth comes from the failures. Growth comes from the education of what not to do. Yeah. Now, you had a failed business, okay? I've had failed businesses. The pair of us have received incredible education mm. on how not to run a business, yeah. how not to do the accounting, how not to do the marketing. Yeah. My greatest advertising, my greatest copywriting on any of my articles has come from me doing really bad ones prior yeah. and learning how they didn't work. Yeah. I am a byproduct of constant failures. And it has got me to where I am. And I've often said, the reason I'm here, the reason I'm enjoying this, this coronavirus period up in the hills of my, my home here in Los Angeles is because I have failed far more times than you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name drop because it was so impactful. I was walking through SpaceX with Elon Musk mm -hmm. and I brought two clients that were desperate to meet um, Elon. And one of the guys was just happy to be in the presence of Elon as we're walking through the factory. The other one was desperate to get into a conversation and Elon didn't want it. He, you know, he's not a chatty guy. Okay. But he's desperate about this conversation. He's throwing out little things, trying to get, you know, Elon to buy and get into a conversation. And he said about NASA and he said, you know, we're walking through SpaceX now. And, you know, I remember when NASA used to kind of like ridicule you for doing space. And now they're your biggest clients. It didn't even throw Elon off his stride. He uttered, he turned around, he said, they'll always laugh at you before they applaud. Mm. And I realized that Elon is a serial failure. He's failed at so many things, 
But the difference was he never allowed his failures to define him. He allowed them to refine them. And if you look at everyone out there, whether it be Henry Ford, Colonel Sanders, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, anyone that we revere as, as icons, as leaders, as disruptors, they're in that position because they use their mistakes to propel them to the success. And that's what we need to be doing today. Sadly, and it still bothers me, and I, I hope this is where my ignorance kicks in, so many people are scared of failing. So many people are scared of having things go wrong. Well, it's from there that your greatest success is going to come. It's from there that your greatest growth and understanding and experience is going to be. So celebrate them. I learned today how this doesn't work. Great. There are people now doing vaccines for this virus. And every single one of those vaccines is failing. But it's only through those failings they can get closer to one succeeding. And they're not there failing on a vaccine going, oh, shit, I better change job now. They're there going, well, okay, that combination didn't work. Tick, get that off the list. Mm -hmm. So we want to stop worrying about our failings and start kind of using them as our rewards. My MBA, my PhD, my doctorate came from failing. Mm -hmm. And I'm pleased to, to have those. Yeah. School didn't do me squat. But all of the failed um, businesses, failed communications, failed proposals, presentations, that's what's really put me where I am today. And that's, I think that a lot of times, so we've talked about some big fail points, you know, and, and you, Elon, big stuff, but we do this every day. I mean, you know, what's interesting to me is that um, until we develop our ego, we do this just fine. Yeah. It, yep. I think about babies, you know, they start trying to crawl and they have a hard time with that. They don't just go, ah, I guess I can't crawl. Same thing. They get up, <laughs> you know, they walk, they fall on their butt. And it's, I didn't get it the first time. So I might as well just, you know, crawl the rest of my life. They keep getting up and getting up and falling down and falling down until the ego gets in the way. Yep. I recently, well, a couple of years ago, started jujitsu. Uh, I did Taekwondo when I was a kid and now I'm old and I needed to be able to tap out, you know, quickly. And so I started jujitsu. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I've realized in that process is, I mean, I tap out, you know, all night long in matches. And when I'm doing that, I'm, you know, okay, that didn't work. Oh, I, I give you that, you know, and each point is, okay, there's another place that I don't want to do next time. I remember, now it's been a while since uh, the COVID crisis. I haven't been rolling for over a month. Yeah. But the last time, this one guy, he's one of the instructors, he tapped me four times in two minutes on the same move. And I finally went, show me what I'm doing wrong because I'm not learning this. You know? <laughs> I've got to expand this. And, and so what, what that means is that we either through life have these moments where we can go, okay, what's the data point here? Th that didn't work. What's the data point to take from it? Or I can say, okay, I failed, I give up, it, there must be something wrong with me. And I think, I don't know what you think, but I think that the, what got in the way is ego. That once the ego is there, I don't want to fail again because I might be noticed or I might notice it myself and change yeah. how I view myself. We're in, we're in a society now where if you make a mistake, it's going to be videoed or it's going to be posted somewhere. And we've got entire shows around people walking into walls and falling off uh, falling off stairs and stuff like we love to laugh at people making mm -hmm. mistakes. Yeah. We don't want to be one of those laughed at. And the other problem is we've got inconsistent and fake 
benchmarks in which people now adopt as how they should live their life. They look at Instagram and they look at these Insta-perfect worlds with these Insta-guru lifestyles and they go, well, I'm working hard. How come that 18-year-old has got that yellow Lamborghini? I haven't. And we, we come up with these, these falsehoods. Um, I actually was in, as I say, I live in Los Angeles. I don't own a car. I ride motorcycles all the time, have done for 30 plus years of my life. Um, and I rode my bike down to Beverly Hills and I had to pick something up. And it's in the car park and I'm walking over to my bike to, to you know, go home. And there's these two dudes on this green Lamborghini and a cameraman filming them. And the Lamborghini's right at the back. And my bike wasn't too far away from them. And I can hear this spiel. And these two guys, these two young lads, are on this car going, yeah, you want to know how I got this car? Well, I can reveal that. to, And they're starting to go into that Insta-guru pitch of buy my course and I'll tell you. And I'm watching it, you know, and I... I get to know a lot of very powerful people. So I've kind of been watching this explosion of, you know, add water Insta guru appears. And as I'm watching it and just smiling at how cheesy it was, I suddenly heard this very angry voice yell to the left of me. And as I turned around, this big fella, this big Armenian fella is running through the car park yelling, get off my effing car. <laughs> and these two kids suddenly hightailed it out of there with that cameraman as this guy's going after him for blood. I could not do anything other than just lean against my bike and cry. These two young lads were pimping out the car that they mm. didn't even own. And we're in this world now where we're selfie-obsessed. And I remember a friend of mine who, you know, very wealthy. I don't know how many jets he owns, above 20 jets. In fact, he, he, lend, he um, rents them out to jet charter companies, okay? And so he's got all of these jets, and he said no one that owns a jet has ever taken a selfie of themselves on one. You know, it's all the people that have chartered it for the day. And in Burbank Airport, which is just north of Los Angeles, you can actually rent a stationary jet for an hour, to go on there to do your inspirational videos or your selfie pictures, yet they won't even start the jet up. Uh, wow. It's hysterical how we're in that visual world. And I'm wondering how it's going to change now. Because, you know, talking about coronavirus again, I've heard no one posting that they want to get back to normality so they can buy that Lamborghini. Mm -hmm. I've heard none of that flash. They all want to have dinner with people. They all want to go for a walk in the park. We're, we're resetting our value matrix. And I haven't, I haven't seen any of those trappings included in any, any postings I've heard people want. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it is going to be an interesting moment afterwards because I think what we're dialing back to is back to authenticity, back to um, being of purpose, back to making a difference, being, you know, what is your impact? What, why are you here as a central question rather than what can I get? Um, what can I get, I think, has uh, run its course because too many people are faking the, you know, what can I get? I would love to jump on the bandwagon with you, and I would love to believe you. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really, I really would. But this morning, I saw a report that on the first day opening of China, Hermes sold $2.7 million in day one. Mm -hmm. 
So sadly, as human beings, we're consumption-based. Now, when the lights go back on and our doors are allowed open, every bar, pub, restaurant, shopping mall is going to be open again. And I'm wondering how fast people are going to forget the fact that they couldn't hug another human being. And I'm hoping it doesn't because I walk, I walk down the path now walking around my neighborhood and from the other side of the road, I'm waving to neighbors and I'm conversing with neighbors that I've never conversed with. You know, I'm texting neighbors that are around me that are older going, Hey, if you need anything, let me get it. And I'll just drop it at a bar. We've got that communication now. I beg and plead and pray that it's not going to die out. But again, humans have a really good reaction to forgetting pain. You know, me personally, I hate tattoos. I, I, me getting ne- I, my wife laughs, laughs at me because even in a blood test, I can't look at the needle. You know, I've got tattoos over me. And six months later, I forgot the immense pain that it put me through. Yeah. And I go and have another one. Yeah. Like an idiot. I'm wondering if we're going to forget this pain, and I hope we don't. Yeah, so you talked about ignorance in the beginning as being your, your superpower. And I would say what it probably is is like mine. It's optimistic ignorance, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I, just, I just gave you my optimistic <laughs> ignorance. <laughs> I'm hoping. Yeah, and I would buy into that. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm hoping. with you. I'm, I'm going to support yours. <laughs> yeah, we're move, I hope we move into something that is more significant than what we've seen in the past few years, but we will see. Yeah. So one of the things that um, you you kind of touched on, but I want you to just talk a little bit about is how you got into the bucket list uh, business. What was what were you moving? Oh, into? that was very easy. Uh, and again, I'm a very primitive thinker. Um, if I want to, if I want to talk to you, I need to know what what you know lights you up. Okay, what do you like? And as the doorman of a nightclub. I wanted to get to talk to the affluent people in the club. I didn't want to talk to the poor people because what could they teach me? I already knew how to be poor. I'd been it for many, many years. So I wanted to talk to rich people, people that didn't care. And I remember seeing this guy, and it's funny. Again, it was one of my pivotal moments. I remember being inside the club at the bar, and there were these four guys that used to come into the club. They were always very respectful, never, ever had any problems, Always wanted a booth, always had the girls with them, always had their bottle service being delivered. And one of the girls came over and delivered his, um, his, his, uh, um, his tab, okay? And she put it down and she did the kind of like, you know, have a great night, guys. You know, that kind of, you know, the tip flirt, you know, where they say something nice to you at the end of the night, hoping that you're going to give a bigger tip, you know? And this girl was like, have a great and the guys were obsessed with the girls that they had picked up in the club and they hadn't paid attention to her. So it had fallen on deaf ears as she was walking away. Okay. You know, we're used to it in the club, you know, to be ignored. But the guy noticed the tab was there, quickly turned around and realized he hadn't responded to her, grabbed the tab, jumped up and said, excuse me, excuse me. And she turned around and went, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much. It's been a lovely night. He put the card in the, in the uh, tab and gave it to her. The two things that hit me was his incredible respect to pay attention to her when he hadn't. Mm-hmm. And secondly, and this is what really, really hit me, this guy put his credit card in this, in this um, uh, wallet 
and not check the tab. Now, me, I was walking around grocery stores during the day, counting up how, it, how much each item was going into my basket, mm. knowing how much money I had in my bank account and not wanting my, my charge card because I couldn't have a credit card. My, I didn't want my debit card to go, eh, eh, you know, in, in, in efficient funds. Now, we know in the hospitality industry, when the guys start getting drunk, they add a couple of extra shots to the bar tab. Is what clubs do. They overcharge you when you start getting drunk. Or the bottles are way more expensive than you could buy them anywhere else. He didn't care. He didn't have to make a phone call to his bank. He didn't have to look at anything to find out if he had the money. I wanted to be in such a position that I didn't care if you were spanking me for a couple of extra dollars. I wanted to be in that position. So what I started doing was talking to them. Now, as the doorman, I knew where all the new nightclubs were coming. I knew where the private parties were coming. So I would say, hey, guys, you know, you like going out of parties. There's a private party on Thursday night. Would you like me to see if I can get you in? And I started communicating with them like that, giving them something that they wanted so they would have a need to talk to me. And then I would say, yeah, when you get to the door, ask for Richard. Tell him Steve Simpson, yeah. So all of a sudden, I now became their entry. I became their key. The, I never woke up one morning and went, right, okay, I'm going to start a network business where I do wish fulfillment for the richest people in the world. My original goal was, what can I make 30 to 50 rich people want to talk to me? Mm. And if they, if they were going out at night, I knew they liked going out at night. So I'd find, I went from getting them into parties to throw in my own parties, to ending up working for events like the Kentucky Derby, the New York Fashion Week, Formula One, the Grammys, Sir Elton John's uh, Oscar party. I ended up working with some of the biggest and partnering with some of the biggest events in the planet, purely and simply because my, my pond needed to get bigger. I didn't want to be the big fish in it. I wanted to find a bigger pond. And I started working for some of the biggest ponds in the planet. Wow. So I'm in Kentucky. I'm in Louisville. So you've, you've been there. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a party. And it's quite a party. Yeah. And, and to get into those places. So you have a network that you then had to go network, which makes me remember your thing about being willing to step in and, and talk to other people. And so you were the one who was just willing to call up and find your way through the, the maze to get to where you needed to. Yeah, and I, I realized very early on, and I think this was part of my, uh, it's amazing how many, back up to my young years of poverty, um, I was very resentful in my 19 and 20 year period, thinking that I'd grown up poor. And it wasn't until my early 20s that I realized how wealthy I was, because I knew how to work. Mm. I knew the power of my word. I realized that never once had I been in fear that our electric would be turned off. Never once did I go to bed without my parents tucking me in and telling me that I was loved. Never once did I go hungry. Hey, I wasn't eating a five-course, you know, Chateaubriand one night, you know, but it was sausages and mash, but I was always fed. Mm -hmm. And so I realized how wealthy I had actually been. And as it grew up through those years, I realized that that was my power. You know, I knew how to talk to people. I knew the power of my bond. I knew the power of my word. And it was those early days 
which I think actually gave me the benefit. So being able to talk to people, I learned very early on that if I'm getting a no in a conversation, only two things can be happening. I'm asking the wrong question or I'm asking the wrong person. Mm. And it was that simple little detail that from when I was a kid, you know, hey, can I do this? No. Well, maybe I shouldn't have asked, can I? Because that was giving me a 50-50. Hey, I'm going to do this. Is there anything you'd like me to do while I'm doing it? You know, something like that is now an assumptive question. Or, you know, ask someone else in power. So those simplest things that you learn as a kid growing up could be the most impactful now to just play in any size pond that you wish. And if you don't think you can do it, you're right. So stop thinking and try it. Yeah, I'm always uh, mindful of Jack Canfield's thing that everything's a no until you ask. It might still be a no, but yep. it might be a yes. And you just took a nuance to that, that the question is how you ask it and who you ask to make sure that you're, you're getting the, the best possible outcome, which is, is well beyond that. Those are all mindset pieces. There's another piece that um, we, you also talked about. It's on your website, but you said perfection and imperfection. Let's just talk a little bit about that to, to wrap this up. What, what does that mean and how does that um, make us thrive? I think we've become uh, desensitized to what's real. And so you pick up, a, um, we saw a revolt on it a few years ago. You'd pick up like a Vogue magazine when you're in your, your, your wife's hairdressers or, you know, anyone with hair is in a hairdresser. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all the models are perfect and all the guys are perfect and the scenery is perfect. And we've learned over the years with our iPhones how many apps can make a gray day look like a sunny day, mm. how the ocean can be kind of nice, but if you click a few buttons, it's bright blue, you know? How you look at a model and all of a sudden, you can start tucking her legs in and stretching it. And when you analyze it, you realize that she's about seven foot one tall, you know? It's just ridiculous mm -hmm. that these aren't real things. And the Dove commercials... Uh, were the first ones that turned around and said, we're going to start using real women rather than Photoshopped avatars. And I think we'd got desensitized to it. I think that's why, uh, well, I'm not, I think I know, if you've got a camera, you know, a $50,000, $100,000 cinema, uh, cinema camera, and you've got perfect sound and perfect light, it won't be as impactful as someone shooting it from an iPhone. Hmm. Why? Because we see more iPhone videos and we can relate to them because we understand them. We acknowledge them. That's why we can relate to real pain and real problems because we've had those. So I believe that uh, perfection is in the imperfections. When it's too perfect, our mind doesn't absorb it anymore. But when someone's making a speech and they fluff up their lines, Usually it's more impactful because we fluff up our lines and we can relate to that being real. You say about authenticity, we now know that that's a human being because, hey, I do the same thing. Mm. I mess my lines up. Yeah, okay. That, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's easy for us to try to perfect. And your whole point is that that isn't impossible, A, and imperfection is the relatable piece. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's great. So, Steve, um, my guess is that people I've connected in this, so I'm sure others have connected too. <laughs> if, if they've had a connection with you, what would be a great place for them to come find more about you? Well, there's a couple of places really, and neither of them charge. Um, 
I've got a website, stevedsims.com. There's only one M and it's D for dog. So, or dashing, whatever you like. Um, stevedsims.com. Or you, if you've got a Facebook uh, account, you can head over to an entrepreneur's advantage by Steve Sims. Cause I'm often in there spouting about different things I'm trying and people will post problems and myself and the community will offer advice on how we can help each other. I'm a great believer that an entrepreneur alone dies, an entrepreneur together conquers. So we're there to support each other. Thank you so much for all of this. This has been just delightful to talk about and um, hearing all of the stories, again, is where the authenticity comes from. The fact that uh, you um, are talking, you're living out what you talk about. And that was what you talked about in the beginning of, of living it out is, is a wonderful thing. So uh, we'll post those links uh, in the show notes uh, and make sure that people can get there. That, that uh, Facebook group, if you're an entrepreneur, that would be a great place. If not, uh, Steve's website, which we'll also link, would be a great place to find more. And just interesting stories. So uh, go find more about Steve. And uh, Steve, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it.